How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 286 of X Lapsed, otherwise known as a uh, speed bump episode. <laughs> um, I've talked in the past about how sometimes I will uh, kind of get ahead of the uh, of my workload, uh, as it were, in writing scripts and reading ahead and just having things in place so I just have to record something and move forward. And you guys know that the weekends are a little bit different these days where I'm, you know, putting together compilations and, and all sorts of stuff here. So the weekends are my time to kind of catch up and get ahead. Then Excalibur hits, and it takes me several attempts to read it, and even more attempts to actually write out my synopsis and uh, script. So, uh, yeah, so much for being ahead of the game. But before we actually get into the issue itself here, I I like to start with uh, something nice. Say something nice about what we're discussing, and um, I can think of two things. One, it's not X-Men Green. And two, it's not X-Corp. And hey, maybe a a hidden third compliment is uh, this might be the penultimate issue of this volume. So that's something that we can uh, maybe hang our hats on. Anyway, let's get into this milestone issue. This is Excalibur Volume 4, number 25. Had a January 2022 cover date, so our first 2022 book. Story's called Come Fate Into the List, which didn't make any sense to me. I, I, I googled it, and I think it's a line from Macbeth, but uh, it's probably been 25 years since I've read Macbeth, so I don't know what they're talking about. Written by Teeny Howard, with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Garshaniga. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Okoye, Bisa, Brunstad, White, Sabolski. That's a lot of editorial uh, muscle on this book here. Cover price, four bucks. Went on sale November the 3rd of 2021. We open with a uh, sort of cinematic bit, where we're popping back and forth between the Battle of the Citadel we left off with last issue and a scene of Betsy getting reacquainted with the members of Strike, who Pete Wisdom wished back into existence whenever the hell that was. Now, among them is Tom Lennox, who is, or was, a love interest to Betsy back in the long ago. And we even get a footnote referring us back to the Captain Britain Legacy trade paperback, which I'm assuming recently came out? You know, all I take from this is how it's fairly clear, at least to me, that our writer isn't reading any of her fellow ex-writers' current year stuff, except Hickman, of course, but will attempt to wow us with some fairly obscure stuff in order to maybe buy some cred. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Anyway, on the topic of obscure references, uh, here's a question. Why haven't Marvel started to implement QR codes in the books? You know, I mean, we did that augmented reality garbage a few years ago, which kind of (laughs) sucked and didn't really work. 
I figure that would be like a real easy way to guide a reader over to maybe whatever it is they're referring to on Marvel Unlimited, right? It might be a way to sell a few more subscriptions. And heck, in my opinion, it would offer more value than the Infinity Comics. So this, hey, maybe, maybe they can do that. Maybe they can implement that. Anyway, as Betsy and Tom get reacquainted, they're joined by fellow strikers, uh, Allison Double, Kevin Mulhern, and Minnie Ripperton. I mean, Vicky Repion. Uh, they've all missed Betsy very, very much, despite having been dead since the last time they saw her. Now, she claims to have missed them dearly as well, so much so that she hasn't mentioned them once in about 40 years. Now, something worth perhaps nitpicking, or I mean noting, uh, Tom Lennox claims that the last thing he remembers was the Slaymaster's Blade. And, well, I don't want to be that guy, but uh, Lennox wasn't killed by the Slaymaster. Um, a couple of the other strikers were, but not Tom. Tom was actually killed by Mad Jim Jasper's Beatles agents. Also, uh, I thought it had been established that mutant resurrectees don't actually remember the moment of their own deaths. You know, their final memory should be whatever their last Cerebro backup was, right? Well, I suppose it was a nice try at wowing us with some obscure X-trivia. All the same, right? E for effort, right? From here, Tom notices Betsy eyeing a woman. And you will never, ever in a million billion years guess who Betsy's looking at. Any guesses? Uh, it's Quanon. It's Quanon because, and I hope you're writing this down because it doesn't come up that often. Betsy and Quanon had like this weird body swap thing over the course of a couple of decades worth of stories. I mean, talk about your obscure ex-trivia, huh? Uh, it's worth noting here that Quanon is in the foreground of this panel, holding hands with someone who has a metallic arm. Who? I doubt it matters. It's not as though uh, Teeny's reading Hellions. Now, Betsy thankfully doesn't explain this situation to Tom. Now, it's at this point where they're joined by those other strikers, so Betsy can talk about how what she has to do goes back to a time before Parliament, before the Crown. She's talking, of course, about Camelot. From here, double-page spread of roll call and cred, our characters are Betsy Britton, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, Megan Braddock, and Saturnine. Back to comics, and it's time for Margaret Thatcher, Valeria Braddock, to explain the plot so even we in the back row can understand it. Sorta. She does so via use of action figures and crackers, which at least looks kinda neat. Uh, the fact that all these grown-ass adults and Shogo the Dragon have gathered around for the presentation, though, I mean... Isn't there, like, a huge battle going on, like, right outside the window? I don't know. I guess the story ain't gonna exposit itself, will it? Uh, let's move on, because if we were to take Maggie's dialogue line by line, we'd be here all day. What it comes down to is Betsy Elite Excalibur and the Betsy Britain Corps into battle, while that weirdo Jamie Braddock, Maggie, and Shogo will fall back and defend Avalon. Now, Jamie ain't too keen on that and reminds his sister that he'd recently gestated an entire space station. So, hey, I, I guess Teeny has read something that neither she or Hickman wrote, so props to you. The Maggie scene ends with her kicking over a table with some juice and crackers on it and getting an earful from Megan, so, um, comedy, I guess? Next, we join Arthur, who's getting a briefing of his own, and it's all fairly boring stuff, even for Excalibur. Uh, Arthur is basically buying Merlin time so he can cast a spell and take out the Starlight Citadel's defenses. Then, the good guy's offensive begins. We've got Saturnine's White Priestesses, we've got the Betsy Britton Corps, and we've got Excalibur, which includes Shatterstar and Bay the Blood Moon, despite the fact that neither got a Brady Bunch square in the roll call. 
Now, it doesn't take long for the Betsy Britons and the priestesses to be driven back by the baddies, just in time for Merlin's mutterings to cause the Citadel to drop its defenses. We see a panel of Saturnine lying in a pool. Maybe it's one of those scrying deals we saw way back in the long ago. Uh, Betsy orders the captains to retreat back to the Citadel. Then she and Excalibur take on Arthur's forces. We get a bit of a ham-fisted joke about the Death Tarot card here, which like many things in this title, feels wildly unearned. Now, you know how the death card seems, like, pretty ominous in the face of it? I mean, it is the death card, after all, but it's actually not quite so black and white as all that. I mean, we know this, right? Well, Brian makes an offhanded comment about the death card, like, oh, I hope this isn't, you know, ominous, bad, to which Megan corrects him to uh, tell him, you know, hey, actually, the card means change rather than, you know, death. To which the rest of the cast shouts her down with a, We know! Is that funny? Uh, Not really, but it also, unless I miss something here, it doesn't feel like something that's been established as something that we're overly reminded of in this book. This isn't like an actually sort of situation, that, at least that I know of. Anyway, so at this point, due to Merlin's meddling, all magic connected to Otherworld has been dried up. As such, Betsy is no longer Captain Britain. She can no longer tap into that power, so she's just a plain old, limitlessly powerful mutant. I mean, boohoo. Now, inside the Citadel, Arthur boasts a bit about this accomplishment, but then he's approached by Betsy, who uh, easily beats him in one-on-one battle via use of her mutant powers. So, alright. I thought in Otherworld we were conflating mutant powers with magic all this time. Like, attempting to explain that they were... The same thing-ish, or at least similar in origin? So here, I mean, it's pretty clear that mutant powers and magic are two different things, which I agree with, and it is fair enough. But it does beg the question, if Otherworld is full of, like, 57 varieties of Betsy Braddock, a mutant with highly superior psychic powers, then why in all hells have we been dealing with this war for the past 700 issues? Couldn't the Betsy Brigade have just used their, you know, wicked psychic powers on the baddies and just called it a day, like back in issue one? Anyway, while Betsy monologues in Arthur's direction about... Hell, I don't know. uh, We've got the rest of the crew retrieving Saturnine from that scrying pool. And then that weirdo Jamie Braddock arrives on the back of Shogo the Dragon. Betsy leaves Arthur laying and holding his aching purple butterfly-filled head. She rants about how, you know, Saturnine might be an asshole, but at least she's their asshole. Or something. Like, she has to be in... I I don't know. Then, uh, Jamie grabs Saturnine, flies up high with Shogo, and then hurls Saturnine toward the ground? Uh, Betsy can't have that, and thankfully her monologue is over, so she rushes over, re-Captain Britain's up, so I guess magic is back, and then catches her royal whiness. Shogo blows fire, I think? Jamie immediately mends the tear in the fabric of Otherworld. Then Merlin shows up and causes the ground below Betsy's feet to crumble. This sends she and Saturnine tumbling into an abyss, a portal of sorts. And we wrap up with the pair waking up on a solitary island in the Sea of Secrets. Here, Saturnine offers to tell Betsy the story of how she came to wrest power of Otherworld from Merlin. Thank goodness for that, right? I mean, is anybody still here? Is anybody still here? That's our story, but it's not the end of the issue, because I guess this story came up a couple pages short, and you know what that means. Info page is... 
It's another look at Baby's First Grant Morrison's Multiversity Map, which shows that Merlin is now, like, in major league control of Otherworld. The Starlight Citadel has either been replaced or has just changed its name to the Lunatic Citadel. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, TGIH, thank goodness, it's Hellions. Okay, I'm going to try to keep this portion of the show brief, briefish. I don't want to repeat myself as often as I usually do. I tell you, I feel like punch drunk right now. Um, this this isn't great. Um, I especially feel bad for all the British readers out there because there's a lot of Britishisms being shoehorned in here, and I think this is one of them, you know, baffle them with BS sort of a situation. I mean, I'm not a worldly guy. I've said that time and again, and I'm sure I will again. But uh, I'm not well educated on cultures of the world. I'm barely educated on my own. <laughs> I, uh, I try to stay out of the real world as, uh, as much as humanly possible. So a writer could shovel just as much BS as they want into my yard, and I won't notice anything. But uh, for folks out there who are more worldly and uh, are familiar or are from you know, where these stories are taking place. I mean, not Otherworld, of course, but I mean, where the characters originate from for the for the most part. This has just got to be, like, brutal, you know? Uh, I have, uh, I've talked about how I don't really read reviews. I don't want to be subconsciously uh, or, or consciously influenced on talking points, right? I don't want a well to be poisoned for me before I can actually get my own thoughts out on a subject. But I have bebopped around at several review sites, and I'm looking for critical takes on Excalibur. You know, I've talked about 10 out of 10s, and uh, yes, those exist. Of course they do. But I'm looking for critical takes, and those do actually exist. However, they're always with this, like, kid gloves, almost apologetic tone, usually blaming any failure of this book with our writer being stuck in the confines of this Krakoa-Hickman era, rather than her just not telling a good story. I don't know why uh, this writer keeps getting the benefit of the doubt when so many other writers are immediately tossed under the bus. I mean, she and the rest of the X-Men creative team are working under the same conditions. But when a Ben Percy, or a Brian Hill, or an Ed Brisson put out something lackluster, nobody is rushing to their aid or defense to complain that their genius is being held back by editorial constraints. It's like when you have a co-worker who just isn't very good at their job, or is always dropping the ball, or is making everybody else's job harder. But they're a nice person, so like every conversation about them always starts with a, oh, they're really, really nice. And it's like, well, nobody's saying they aren't, you know? Uh, the thing of it is here... This Excalibur just isn't, and has never been, a well-put-together story. It ignores and contradicts continuity and characterization in order to make the pieces fit better than they should. It's dragged on for over two years at this point, without any urgency or reason for being. It wastes everybody in the book's cast except for Betsy. Why is Gambit here? Why is Jubilee here? Why is Richter here since Apocalypse is gone? This cast is being wasted. And, I mean, Betsy gets plenty of time, but it mischaracterizes her, too, and it repeats, like, the same handful of Betsy talking points that we see any time she's been on panel anywhere since this era kicked off and before that. We are 25 issues in, and Excalibur Volume 4 could have been a one-shot. And it still wouldn't have been very good. At least in my opinion. 
Thankfully, I've looked at the uh, most recent Marvel previews, and uh, there's no sign of Excalibur. So um, I'm guessing that it's coming to a close. Don't know if it'll be back. Don't know if it'll come back post-Inferno and uh, Slado Slado. It could be coming back. It could be taking a different form. But I suppose we will uh, worry about that another day. Uh, For now, um, hey, we're getting somewhere, I guess. Uh, I guess we could be happy about that. And hey, you know what? If issue 26 is the final issue, then hopefully it manages to bring everything together. And tell a satisfying story that leads to a satisfying ending Can't say that I'm holding my breath But um, I will attempt to be uncharacteristically optimistic about Excalibur One thing I gotta make sure to say, the art was wonderful Marcus Toe, excellent artist, great storyteller, beautiful characters Just um, really good stuff in the art department But I think that's all I have to say about this issue. Uh, Let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a few letters to get to. It's it's nice to have a uh, mailbag with some letters in it again. We'll kick things off with a return. Um, We had Damien return a couple episodes ago. Now we've got Andrew in Belfast writing in. He says, hey, Chris, I'm writing in the first of at least two emails into the show. This first one is a general update and to say hello again. After a period of getting very behind on my books due to a three-way combo of my comic store closing for a period of three to four months early in 2021, perpetual delays in shipments from Diamond once my store opened, and then my whole house getting COVID despite us getting the vax as well. I finally caught up with my books and then the show. I've also been reading and enjoying Preacher alongside the Sunday show. It's the first time I've read that book and I'm enjoying it a lot so far. Well, before anything else, I want to welcome you back. It's always great to hear from Andrew. Uh, Andrew and I go back to uh, my weird science days back in, boy, that's like five or six years now, (laughs) which is a ridiculously long time when I stop to think about it. It's always awesome to hear from Andrew. I'm so happy that he's back. And and that three-way combo that you faced earlier this year, that does not sound... uh, does not sound pleasant, um, especially the, the COVID bit there. I, I hope everyone is feeling better again, because uh, that's some scary stuff, especially if you already had the vaccine. I mean, I had uh, I had both shots as well as a booster, and I'm still nervous. I still wear a mask out everywhere I go. It's, it's scary stuff, isn't it? Uh, also, thank you for uh, checking out the Preacher Show to the choir that uh, me and Dave do. That's been a lot of fun, too. It's the first time I've ever read Preacher, so um, it, it's pretty neat to uh, be able to read that and process my thoughts alongside someone who has read the book, you know, a few times over. It's, it's pretty cool stuff, so if anybody hasn't checked that show out, it is available in the archives. Uh, Andrew continues, Anyway, just a general email on how I'm feeling about the X-Books. Well, on the whole, I would say I'm still enjoying them a lot, but I'm reading much more strategically than I was at first. Having stuck with the full lineup until after Dawn of X, I enjoyed most of X of Swords, while Hellfire Gala was, for me at least, a lot of fun, and I enjoyed the majority of it, even if the Scarlet Witch incident was kinda botched and rushed the uh, last X-Factor issue. I loved planet-sized X-Men, and thought it surpassed my very low expectations. I just thought it was cool in a teenage Andrew kinda way. I'm also enjoying the new volume of X-Men, and I'm kind of hoping that we end up edging the X-Men universe back into the regular Marvel Earth. I miss the X-Men being based in New York and interacting more regularly with the normal Marvel universe, although I enjoyed the little team-up element in King and Black. 
Anywho, I liked Damien's email in the Phoenix Echo episode, and I've gotten around to the issue of not enjoying some of the books in the X-Line by whittling my books down to X-Men, X-Force, Wolverine, Marauders, and, while it lasts, Hellions. I'm also picking up the Inferno and Trial minis, and I also enjoyed Way of X. I still feel relatively positive about the state of the franchise generally, and I'm looking forward to seeing how, the Hickman, how Hickman hands off things. I still think that the biggest value added by Hickman was to relaunch the franchise with a weighty, big-hitting presence to at least give the X-Men solid standing and equal status to the rest of the Marvelverse after years of poor treatment. It has at least done that, even if the quality control is less than perfect. But then, that's the case across both Marvel and DC at the moment. DC would take an entire other email. I suppose to echo some statements from Evan's recent email into the show, I think us fans and X-Lapse listeners generate most of our entertainment these days from the speculation around storylines, and also share your frustrations that perhaps some of the editorial staff might do the same. Now, there's a lot in that paragraph to go through, and I agree with it uh, wholeheartedly here. Um, It can't be stated enough that, um, as Andrew put it here, the biggest value that Hickman added to the entire franchise is that it made it big again. And, I mean, sales notwithstanding, I mean, the sales have been good. They've been better than they were. And, I mean, but as we've looked at in Sales of X, they probably couldn't be much worse and still be published. So the, the sales have come back up. But more importantly, the as Andrew says here, the speculation has come back up. And I'm not talking about... You know, the speculator market. I'm talking about speculation as to how this series, how these stories, how this era is going to play out. It's making the X-Men, you know, a a water cooler subject again, which it hadn't been in a very, very long time. Marvel spent most of the 2010s, uh, and I mean, (laughs) I don't know if I take this more personally than most or than I should, but it felt like Marvel was burying the X-Men, and we've talked about why, we've talked about movie rights, we've talked about all that silliness, we've talked about the Inhumans. So the X-Men have had a pretty hard time of it, to the point where I wasn't sure that they'd ever be able to correct course or ever be able to make the X-Men mainstream again. You know, I'm talking in in comic circles, of course, because the X-Men were, for the longest time, the straw that stirred the drink, not only at Marvel, but in the industry. And after a decade and a half, almost two decades of being kind of backburnered for the Marvel Studios crew, no matter how boring or procedural or pedestrian those stories became, I mean, was there a single Bendis issue that didn't, like, half of it didn't take place in a darkened room full of monitors where the Avengers were waiting for S.H.I.E.L.D. to tell them what to do? I mean, these stories got boring, but they were put ahead of the X-Men. So it took a pretty wild swing to bring the X-Men into conversation again. And that swing was Hoxpox. And, you know, when you look at Hoxpox in and of itself, I mean, it's a wild swing. You know, they, they changed, they upheaved a lot of what we thought we knew. You know, the established X-continuity, X-canon. Everything happened, but happened for fairly different reasons here. It's something that could have backfired. It's something that could have been rejected. But it was so well told, and it was so intriguing, and I think, I mean, I was X-lapsed until then. I was gone. I was never coming back until I found out that there was this buzz. And then I came back, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of other people came back because the sales went up. And we know from just the feedback we've gotten on this show that this direction isn't everybody's cup of tea, but we want to know how it plays out, which is good. That's a good thing. 
Um, Andrew mentions uh, DC, uh, their quality control of late, which, uh, oh boy. Um, Reggie and I used to talk all the time about how it was so hard to be a fan of both Marvel and DC because it always seemed like one of the companies was doing something just asinine. Every time. Like, if Marvel was doing something great, then leave it to DC to screw something up. If DC was flying high, then Marvel was screwing stuff up. It was so hard to find a balance between the two companies where it's like, hey, they're both putting out really good stuff. And uh, that's kind of the uh, the tone of today, I feel, where I feel like Marvel's hitting a lot more than DC is, where around the time of Rebirth in 2016... I mean, Marvel was just uh, something I thought I'd never, ever, ever read again. And DC was my new home after, you know, coming in as a Marvel guy. It's it's odd that it's uh, swung so quickly back the other direction here because, I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you which way was up in DC right now. I've got a stack of them. I still buy them. They still come to my house because I'm an idiot. And uh, I've looked at them. I've flipped through them. And I don't know what is what. To me, it feels like DC is just interested in flooding the market with a few big names. And that's something that I would attribute to Marvel back in uh, a couple of years ago, where like every book was a spider book. And there were 85 flavors of Spider-Man swinging through New York at any given time. Right now, I don't know that there's a single week in the month where there are less than 10 Batman books put out. Which is very, very stupid. <laughs> it's really, really dumb. Uh, a little aside here. Uh, the wife has been trying to convert me into a pop person. You know, the Funko Pops that I've often, you know, spit venom at on these airwaves and on this channel. But uh, she's got a handful of them that she's been trying to track down that uh, have caught her eye. And uh, anytime we go somewhere, she'll always point out some of the comic ones to me. And they're, they're starting to grow on me a little bit. Uh, I grabbed, uh, or she actually picked up the original five X-Men for me. I had Cyclops because, you know, Cyclops is my guy, but uh, she picked up Angel, Beast, Iceman, and Marvel Girl for me. So I'm starting to come around. I'm not 100% there, but uh, I can see the uh, novelty uh, of having uh, these little, you know, cute bobbleheads in my room. So we stopped at a uh, comic store in, in a small part of uh, Old Town here in, uh, in the Phoenix area, and uh, the parking situation there is, like, awful. You know, it's old town, so it's like you park on the side, like by the sidewalk. But there's a ton of traffic because, regardless of being old town, the traffic is still, you know, new town. <laughs> so I dropped her off in front of the the comic shop to take a look for the uh, pops there, and I was going to drive around the back to the uh, parking area, you know, like a quarter mile away. So as she's getting out of the car, I asked her if she would check to see if this shop had uh, thing number one, the uh, Walter Mosley one that just uh, recently came out. Somehow I missed it when uh, when I was filling out my DCBS order a couple months ago. So I didn't realize it came out. And apparently it's uh, like sold out everywhere. I, I did manage to find a copy somewhere else. A, a variant cover has a little scuff on it, but uh, I have it. So I'm happy that I have it. So I asked her if she would check to see if they had it there as I was parking the car. And uh, I get into the store like five minutes later and she's like, why are there so many Batman books? That was the first thing she said about this comic shop. She's never looked at a comic wall before. This is the first book I ever had her actually look for for me, this thing issue. And she was just blown away by how many damn Batman books there were. And I said to her, I'm like, hey, if you had to pick one of these Batman books, could you? And she said no. <laughs> 
she says she wouldn't have the first foggiest idea what Batman book to pick up, which basically told me all I needed to know about uh, the ability of the Bat family or the Bat exploitation in getting new readers in here. It's funny. Uh, one of the main one of the main complaints that I recall, uh, besides you know putting all of DC's continuity in the toilet back when they launched the new Fifty Two, was the fact that there were fifty two of them. You know, there are 52 books. That's a lot of books, right? That's a, that's a huge, huge pile of books every month. And right now, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that there were actually 52 Batman books a month. Which, I mean, that's, that's insane. And the fact that, in my opinion, DC wasn't able to keep the quality of a single Batman book up, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how they would do with 52. Uh, Andrew continues. Let's get, let, let me get, let's get me off this tangent here. Andrew says, on a lighter note, X-Men Green, despite me having a lot of X-Books on my pull list, entirely passed me by. This isn't hyperbole. I genuinely had not heard of it at all, as I don't do comics websites or YouTube, weird science aside. And had it not been for your show, I wouldn't have even known that it existed. Needless to say, I did not read, have no interest in reading, nor do I plan on letting it encroach on my headcanon. And that, my friend, is the best way to be. <laughs> Not letting X-Men Green into your headcanon is uh, probably the smartest play. Andrew continues, Finally in this, did I say brief email, I wanted to say that I'm enjoying your shows on the original Lee, Kirby, etc. X-Men books from 1960s. I recently went out and got some of those new little manga-sized Marvel books reprinting the original 60s Marvel, and got the X-Men Volume 1, which has the first ten issues of X-Men. I wonder how issues 1 and 2 of the X-Men and Xavier's rigorous work in defending the U.S. military-industrial complex would go down with today's Marvel editorial team. I jest, of course. And I think I'll I'll just leave that there. Uh, Andrew continues, Anyway, keep up the good work. I think we can risk taking for granted someone who puts out daily content like your show. So I'm glad to be able to give back some small support through Patreon and the one form of social media I use, Twitter. The, Lib- the Luddites were on to something, I think. What's this Marvel Unlimited I hear you talking about? I never thought I'd see the day when Chris went for digital. Maybe there's still hope for me yet. Just stay away from Guided View. <laughs> well, yes, thank you so much for your, your kind words there. Um, that's something I think about, and I think I mentioned this when I did my, you know, uh, fake-ass how-to-podcast uh, talk uh, about a month or two ago where I said that some of the comments that I've gotten are that people uh, find it comforting that my show is there every day. They don't, they don't listen to it. <laughs> they don't engage with it. But uh, they're like, it's it's so nice to see that, to have that one constant. Especially with all the upheaval we've had in the past, you know, a couple of years uh, to this point. So, I mean, you take any any sort of compliment you can get, I suppose. But uh, I absolutely appreciate any time anybody takes a moment to engage with the show or, or you know, listen to the show or just, you know... Realize that it exists, or acknowledge that it exists. Uh, as for the digital thing, yeah, I never thought I'd be digital either. That was a uh, conscious decision I had to make when I decided that the Essentials show was going to be as uh, broad as it's become, where, you know, it's not just going through X-Men 1 through, you know, whatever. It's every. X-Men appearance, and while I have a lot of those Silver Age appearances in Essentials form or in trade form, I don't have all of them, you know, I don't own, you know, a Thor Essential, so I wouldn't have had that Thor and Magneto issue, 
uh, the Strange Tales uh, with Human Torch and Thing meeting up with uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. I wouldn't have those. Uh, Scar- uh, you know, Human Torch meeting up with Iceman. I don't have that physical either. And as so many of those essentials are now like fetching like pretty high prices due to being out of print and I think like a weird uh, secondary market has sort of fomented around the essentials because they are uh, like a wonderful novelty and they, they look really cool on the shelf and I think a lot of fans kind of let them go by the wayside since they were in black and white. And I think in the years since, there's been a newfound appreciation for them. And so uh, prices on the secondary market have just been unkind. <laughs> They've been very expensive. So the thought of uh, buying an entire Thor essential for like 40 or $50 for a 12-page story... I mean, I spend stupid money on things all the time, but eh, it's one of those things I couldn't, I couldn't justify. It was much easier for me to take, you know, that whatever it was going to cost for one used essential and buy a year's subscription to uh, Marvel Unlimited. And it's, it's, been, it's been actually very, very helpful. It's very user-friendly. It allows me to read my comics in the dark, <laughs> which isn't a benefit I thought of uh, right off the bat. I, I didn't realize that, hey, I, you know, I don't have to get up and turn out a light now. I can actually just, you know, turn the iPad off and, and you know, go to sleep. You are totally right about Guided View, though. I do not care for that at all. Uh, The first few days that I had Unlimited, I couldn't get it to work on my iPad since uh, my iPad is like a Generation 2. It's ancient. So I had to, like, kind of backdoor the way that I I was able to pull up the app. And it's like it's an ancient version of the app now. So, I mean, it takes a while to, like, slide the pages over. But, I mean, it's better than shelling out, you know, another 500 bucks on a newer iPad. So the first time I used Marvel Unlimited, it was on my my phone, which is a small screen, so not the easiest thing to read. And I have mentioned my uh, my uh, going blind woes of late. I'm still waiting for my my progressive lenses to show up, which uh, has taken a little bit longer than uh, than they said it would. But uh, it's hard for me to see, so I had to actually try using guided view on my phone, and I hated it. I really, really didn't like it at all. Andrew continues, I'll send in a note soon with some Inferno theories, although I think I'm something of an amateur when I hear the complexity that you and Damien get into at times. Anyway, until then, may all your galas be hellfired. P.S. The Spider-Man show is great. Glad to have you on board. I think you'd also enjoy the Daredevil Zarsky run if you need to expand the X-Labs franchise further. Well, thank you so much for checking out uh, WebLabs, and... You know, that's another benefit of Marvel Unlimited. The first couple of, uh, you know, recent-ish books that I checked out on there were uh, the Ewing Immortal Hulk, which I hadn't read, and the Zarsky Daredevil, which I also hadn't read, and I I enjoyed them both uh, a fair amount. I haven't gotten very far in them since I'm not doing any shows on them, and uh, we talked about, you know, reading for fun and all that stuff and how that's <laughs> a luxury that I don't always have. But, uh... I did enjoy them, and maybe uh, maybe one of these days we'll do some sort of a uh, lapsed without fear or something. You, you never know. Andrew continues, P.P.S. Beware, though. Marvel needs to keep Rowan Horse away from the Daredevil franchise. I can't bear any more lame Hell's Kitchen-related dialogue slash quips. <laughs> See Echo Song issue one. Yes, uh, that was uh, more than a little bit cringy, even though it did remind me of that... Uh, 
iconic line from the Wicked Witch to the Scarecrow in Prison of Oz. Andrew wraps up with PPPS. I feel like I should sign off with something slightly less salty, so wishing X-Lapse listeners the best of holiday well wishes. Well, thank you so, so much for uh, taking the time to write in, Andrew. It's always great to catch up with you, and, uh, and I am definitely looking forward to hearing your Inferno theory. So thanks again. Uh, next up, we got Evan talking about Cable Reloaded number one. He says, Cable Reloaded was all right with me, but it did feel more like a backdoor Exterminators pilot than an event. Of course, part of my enjoyment was immediately thinking upon the references to Breakworld. Oh man, Chris is going to love that. <laughs> to be fair, even though you and I have different opinions on Whedon's astonishing X-Men run, when pressed, I could only describe Breakworld as that planet from Whedon's astonishing run. I think... Breakworld came back for uh, part of the uh, Kieran Gillen Uncanny run, and I remember enjoying that more than I enjoyed the Whedon run. Then again, I mean, I feel like I've blocked a lot of the Whedon run out. Uh, when I reflect on it, I can think of uh, delays, ridiculous, painful, disrespectful delays uh, that held up the entire X-Men line. Um, I could think of uh, breaking the dead is dead rule, for the guy slumming it in comics by bringing back Colossus when Casada and company wouldn't let anybody else bring anybody else back. I could think of Breakworld, and I could think of Kitty and a Bullet. Who knows, maybe down the line we'll do some sort of a retrial on that. Maybe I could uh, give it a uh, one of those hindsight looks here where I can ignore some of the uh, more egregious things that I found about it back in, what was it, 2004, 2005? So I tell you, I was really annoyed they brought Colossus back the way they did. And not the fact that they brought him back, but the fact that they, that Quesada would not let comic book writers bring bring characters back, but uh, the dude slumming it in comics gets carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to do. That that really rubbed me the wrong way. And also the delays. The delays I found to be so disrespectful to anybody else trying to tell an X-Men story at that time. Just a real uh, self-serving dick move from uh, Whedon, which... I mean, that might just be par for the course for him. Who knows? Evan continues. I also imagined your reaction to the pouch joke. <laughs> I took it as Ewing maybe trying to legitimize the pouches, like, hey, you guys laugh at the pouches and Cable knows it, but this is why he has them. But that feels excessive. Cable has pouches. I don't think we need any more depth to it than that. And yeah, perhaps I was a little too hyper-focused on the Durher pouches jokes. I, I can't blame Ewing for that, necessarily. I think it's... More my knee-jerk reaction to the low-hanging fruit that, uh, you know, the Liefeld low-hanging fruit that we've seen so many times over, like like those uh, clickbait articles, like, here's, you know, 40 pictures of Rob Liefelds that suck, and it's like, hey, in every single one of these, we're going to talk about the fact that there's no feet, and pouches, and uh, gritted teeth, and broccoli fleurette hair, and it's like, okay, well, you said that 40 times already. <laughs> we really don't need this anymore. And then we have dickheads going to conventions trying to hand Rob copies of uh, How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way or trying to get him to draw pouches and sign them. It's like, there are a lot of things we can say about Rob Liefeld's art, right? Do we need to hyper-focus on the damn pouches? It's just such such a cheap pop. And that might have been my problem with it in the, uh, in the Ewing issue here, where, like, saying pouches over and over again, I know that that got a certain portion of the fan base or the readership, you know, fist pumping, like, yeah, make fun of those pouches. They suck. That's 90s stuff, you know, when, when comics used to actually sell. 
Anyway, Evan wraps up with, I would like to see more of this team. It was good to get to see Boom Boom portrayed as capable instead of just a functioning alcoholic. And yeah, it was a fairly interesting team, I think. Uh, I don't know if this is going to replace Sword on the uh, scheduling uh, post-Inferno. Um, we just had a uh, sort of kind of shoe drop in Sword, which may preclude that or interfere with it. But, uh, I mean, Ewing wrote both, so I think he probably knows where he's headed. So uh, I guess we will just wait and see. But thank you so much for writing in to share your thoughts on that one, Evan. Uh, next up, we got Peter talking about the trial of Magneto. He says, History doth thou repeat thyself. I remember being a young lad when Marvel thought it was a great idea to make Tony Stark a bad guy during Civil War, and then doubled down on it for the next several years while a movie came out, and it starred Iron Man and did gangbusters. And a sequel was made, so before that sequel hit theaters, they had Tony Stark dying. And the only way to bring him back, with Cap, Strange, and Thor's help, was to restore an old backup copy of his mind from before the Civil War storyline. If it's good enough for Tony, I guess, then it's good enough for Wanda. Weirdly, from what I understand, since I didn't read the comics, Marvel decided it was a great idea to dig themselves into the same hole with Carol Danvers in Civil War II. Is that actually what they did with Tony? <laughs> I, oy, um, yeah, I've talked about how Civil War was my uh, Rubicon from a uh, Marvel zombie into a uh, more passive Marvel reader, or actually just kind of slinking back into the, the X-Men corner again because I hated Civil War. I mean, I'm... Fairly sure I'm on record as saying that uh, that was the show that uh, Reggie and I were going to do for the longest time, but we both got so mad reading it <laughs> that it was like, this is just going to be vitriol for, for, you know, the entire two hours of the show. So it was always backburnered, and uh, we just never got around to it. But yeah, that's when I stopped buying everything. So I dropped things like Captain America, things like Iron Man. I, I was not up to date on... Most things Avengers. I think I still picked up new Avengers, but uh, everything else I was, I was way out with. So that's pretty crazy. If that's what they did with Tony to to bring him back and make him more, uh, I guess, uh, digestible for the you know one or two fans of the movies who actually found their way into a comic store and then found themselves parting with a five dollar bill in exchange for an issue of Iron Man. And I am aware of the whole Carol thing. That was brutal. Uh, I was on a show, I was on Source Material probably, boy, two years ago at this point, and uh, we did Civil War II. I think that was my first ever appearance on, on Source Material. And, yeah, that, that's, that was a rough read. That was a real rough read. Peter continues, Oh, hang on, history is whispering something and I can just barely make it out. History just told me that a respite would be much appreciated from heroes throwing away their established personal and shared histories solely so they can fight other heroes that they've known and loved for years. I don't know, History, that sounds like kind of a kooky idea for the old house of ideas. <laughs> and, uh, you ever read someone else's words and think to yourself, like, wow, I feel like I could have written that. <laughs> it's basically how I feel about the, uh, the whole Civil War thing and the whole heroes fighting heroes thing. I'd actually gotten into a sort of kind of passive-aggressive argument at a comic shop back during, maybe it was AVX. Um, it was one of the Hero vs. Hero things. And uh, I was buying my pile of books back then, and the guy behind the counter was just going on about how great this new storyline was going to be and how original it was and how uh, it was just so forward-thinking. And I said something along the lines of like, 
yeah, it's a Marvel book with heroes fighting heroes. We've never seen that before. And he kind of took offense to that. And, and I, I was able to like rattle off like four or five recent stories where it's just been hero versus hero versus hero. I'll give Marvel this much. They've gotten better about doing that, right? It's not like it's not like every single story is hero versus hero anymore. We're still getting it. Just not quite as often. So hopefully we're on a course correction and not just taking a break from the hero versus hero garbage because Lord knows we don't need more of that. But uh, thank you so much for writing in on that one, Peter. I really, really appreciate it. Speaking of appreciation, let's hop over to the shout-out department here. This is thanking the folks who took a moment out of their day to engage with or click the little icon on the social media posts about this program. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Jesse D. Young, Andrew in Belfast, Walt Nealon, Dave Schultz, Billy D., Ed Moore, Mark Jagger, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Longbox Crusade, Kirk Spencer, Anthony Awasis... Hmm. I'm so sorry, Anthony. Anthony Iwasisen, maybe? Hmm? Joe Crawford, Chris Bailey, Fonzo Comics, Ruben Ortega, Angus Von Schenker, and Wacky Bronze slash Silver Comic Book Villains. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Joe Crawford, Pat Sampson, Al Sedano, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Billy D, and Andrew Franklin. And on Instagram, I want to thank Mark Jagger, Jeremiah, The Ex-Wife Podcast, Matt Holmes, Trey Michael, Kwok Hung, The Chat Lurker, Gio, Juan Jose Santillan, Christopher Molina Roli, The Mint Condition Podcast, Pepe de Brazil, John Zedang, Ligs 800, and uh, one of my favorites, Promo2296, who... Uh, Wants to uh, wants to sell me something to uh, promote my show. I'll thank you for the heart click all the same, since it uh, helps with whatever algorithm I think they have on Instagram. So thank you all so, so much. While I'm thanking people, I want to thank the patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast. You are all amazing, and your support means the absolute world to me. So thank you all so, so much. Now, let's uh, wrap up this episode. It's uh, Monday, so we have This Week in X, where we take a brief look at the books hitting Marvel Unlimited this Monday, as well as the books hitting the shelves this Wednesday. Unlimited, it's a pretty small week. We've got Hellions 15 and New Mutants number 21, so pretty short week. On shelves, however, we got some stuff here. We got the final issue of Hellions. Hellions 18 with eight covers? Eight co- We're waiting until the last issue of this book to start giving it variants? Uh, I mean, more than one variant, because every book has a variant, but eight variants? Okay. Uh, Inferno number three, seven covers. Marvel's Voices Community Number 1, which has seven covers, and I actually am getting that one from DCBS. They, uh, that's in my shipment this coming month, so uh, looking forward to covering that somewhere down the line. Uh, speaking of the Voices Project, uh, we will be doing Marvel's Voices Identity in, I think, two episodes from now. Today is uh, 286. I believe Identity is set for episode 288. Um, we also have uh, we have some trades coming out here. We have the X Men from the Ashes trade, another you know version of that, and the X Men Inferno Prologue Omnibus hardcover for one hundred dollars. We've got X Men number nine, which has two covers, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, Demon Day's X Men Creators cut, because Lord knows. Comic shops across the country and across the world need more copies of Demon Days on their damn shelves. 
This one's six bucks, by the way. Though, if you really, really want the physical copy of this and are willing to wait like six weeks, you could probably get 15, 20 copies of it for 50 cents a piece. It's funny, going back to that tangent from before when I was looking for that issue of Thing, um, the uh, guy behind the counter there uh, was saying that, that that book sold out like ridiculously quick. They tried ordering more copies and were told that there were no more copies coming and were also told not to hold their breath for a second print. And I joked about uh, how the printing presses must be full of Peach Momoko stuff right now and, uh, and the dude chuckled, so I guess he, uh, he understood where I was coming from. But 47 minutes in, I think I'm going to stop talking right now. I apologize for as vitriolic as this episode turned out to be. I was not expecting it to be this way. But uh, I guess when it rains, it pours. <laughs> now, if anybody out there would like to write in to tell me to quit my kvetchen or to say anything, I guess, feel free to get a hold of me. You can find me several different ways. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics. I'm on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90sXmen. Of course, the complete audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. you find that any way you find noise on the internet. And finally, the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapsed, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes stuff, and a wonderful group of folks to chat with. So if you're interested in checking any of that out, please feel free to do so. But I think I will finally zip of the lip right now. I would like to thank you all so much for allowing me to, uh, I guess, vent <laughs> in your ears for the better part of an hour today. I'll try to do better, I promise. Uh, next time's a hellion, so I'm sure we're going to do better. <laughs> but uh, thank you all so much for being there. And uh, till next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.